Hello, short story enthusiasts. I'm Cedaring Fox, Ward Theater's founder and artistic director. As those of you who have been listening know, last year, 2023, marked the 20th anniversary of Ward Theater producing live shows in Los Angeles, New York, and London. This week, January 24th, 2024, we celebrated the three-year anniversary of what we've been calling the Word Theater Short Story Podcast. But I've been talking to our new crop of interns, and we decided we're not really a podcast. We're just a crazy nonprofit organization that every Saturday shares a new story with everyone in the world, free. Thus, we have rebranded. Our new name moving forward is Saturday Stories. New year, new us. Please note that Word Theater holds the copyright to these recordings, so no portion of anything you hear may be reproduced without permission. This week, we have a special treat. Word Theater is supported by our members, and we love to show them our appreciation. Each year, we throw a Swedish party and enjoy Swedish meatballs, gravlocks, glug, followed by a live performance. This year, the party fell on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So I thought, let's do a mashup of Scandinavian and MLK Day material. Stories, poems, music. I think it worked. You'll be the judge. Even though it was a members party, we thought it would be really appropriate to share it with all of you in hopes that you'll become a member. Starting next week, enthusiasts can watch a full video of the show, courtesy of our friend Rob Toth, in your members area. Over the years, we've been privileged to work with a phenomenal musical director, pianist, composer, and arranger Star Parodi, and her daughter, Isolde Fair, a violin virtuoso. We were lucky to have them, Logan Richardson on sax, and Amy Keys on vocals to complement the literary offerings. Make sure to stick around for today's final musical performance. You'll thank me. To kick things off, here now is Logan Richardson.
To fling my arms wide in some place of the sun. To whirl and to dance till the white day is done. Then rest at cool evening beneath a tall tree while night comes on gently, dark like me. That is my dream. <laughs> to fling my arms wide in the face of the sun, dance, whirl, whirl, till that quick day is done. Rest at pale evening, a tall, slim tree, night coming tenderly, black like me. Tracy Toms, The Dream Keeper, by Langston Hughes, poet, novelist, fiction writer, and playwright of the Harlem Renaissance. Known for his insightful, colorful portrayals of black life in America from the 20s through the 60s. I have the great good luck in life that when I sleep, I dream. And my dreams are always beautiful. This gift of dreaming runs in my family. It's highly valued by all of us and makes us feel that we have been favored above other human beings. <laughs> An old aunt of mine asked to have written on her tombstone, she saw many a hard day but her nights were sweet. <laughs> the first characteristic of my dreams is this. I move in a world deeply and sweetly familiar to me, a world which belongs to me and to which I myself belong more intensely than is ever the case in my waking existence those cherished places within or towards which I travel, those friends infinitely dear to my heart, whom I am rushing forward to meet and from whom I cannot bear to part, I have never seen. The second characteristic of my dreams is their vastness, their quality of infinite space. I move in mighty landscapes among tremendous heights, depths, and expanses, and with unlimited views to all sides. The loftiness and expanses, the loftiness and airiness of the dream come out again in its color, color scheme of rare, luminous blues and violets and mystically transparent browns, all of which I promise myself to remember in the daytime and yet there can never recall. Long perspectives stretch before me. Distance is the password of the scenery. At times, I feel the fourth dimension, 
is within my reach. I fly in dream to any altitude. I dive into bottomless, clear, bottle green waters. It's, it's a weightless world. Its very atmosphere is joy. Its crowning happiness, unreasonably or against reason, is that of triumph. <laughs> For we have in the dream forsaken our allegiance to the organizing, controlling, and rectifying forces of the world. The universal conscience. We have sworn fealty to the wild, incalculable, creative forces. The imagination of the universe. Some people tell me that the capacity of dreaming belongs to childhood and early youth, and that as your faculties of seeing and hearing ebb away, your talent for dreaming will go with them. My own experience tells me that it is the other way. I dream today more than I ever did as a child. And in my present dreams, things stand out more clearly than ever. And more <laughs> to be wondered at. Already now, I feel that day is a space of time without meaning. And that it is with the coming of the dusk, with the lighting of the first star, and the first candle, that things will become what they really are and will come forth to meet me. The unruly river which has bounced along wildly, sung out loudly and raged against her banks will widen and calm down will, in the end, fall silently into the ocean of dream and silently experience the supreme triumph of unconditional surrender. Amanda Donahoe, The Lost Hills, by Baroness Karen von Blixen Finicke, the Danish author who wrote under the pseudonym of Isak Dinesen and is perhaps best known as the author of Out of Africa. My desire is always the same wherever life deposits me. I want to stick my toe. <laughs> and soon my whole body into the water. I want to shake out a fat broom and sweep dead leaves, bruised blossoms, dead insects, and dust. I want to grow something. It seems impossible that desire can sometimes transform into devotion. But this has happened. And that is how I've survived how the whole I carefully tended in the garden of my heart grew hard to fill it. 
Tina Lifford, Desire by Alice Walker, American novelist, short story writer, poet, and social activist. In 1982, she became the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, which she was awarded for her novel, The Color Purple. If you start where the mouth of the river opens into the Bay of Bothnia, you will be in the town of Colix. The river runs smoothly here. It is good to walk up a river. Easier to go down by boat or canoe, but better to go up. Do you have a map? Vitvatnet means white water. You can get good fish there. You will pass Murjarv. Mur means mother, Yarv, Finnish for lake. Between Muyarv and Svartbin, there are some cascades. They are not as wild as they used to be. They were dynamited so that the river would not flood Uverkoliks in the spring, making the town into an island. When it did, we had to go to school by rowboat. The magic starts just south of Svartbin. Walk slowly. If your shoes are worn, see if someone will row you across the river to the deaf-mute's house. He speaks in gestures and is skilled when it comes to fixing heel and sole. Seven kilometers of pine wood stretch between Svartbin and Grailsbin. Grailsbin is not on the map, but you will know it. You will recognize it from my description. I was born there. When I learned to spell, I liked to figure out the meaning of names. But there was one name I could not understand, the name of the river Colix. It was not until I was 31 years old, in a dream, a large book opened. On the page, it was written that Colix is the Latin for the word chalice. There was a bright light around the book, leather-bound, gold-lettered. When I woke up, I looked into the encyclopedia, and the word that I, as a beginning reader, had thought foreign because of its X was there, colix, Latin for chalice, just as the dream had shown. When I was a rider on my father's foot, Ride a cock course to Branbury Cross. I learned the names of the things in the room. Chair. Door. Table. Broom. Then the words for the things outside. Flower. Grass. River, stone, and even things I could not touch. Morning, evening, season, sun. Now I learn the names of stars. Vega. Mira, Deneb, Altair, and the constellations that are birds flying far above us, 
Singus the swan, Aquila the eagle, Corvus the crow. For I am a rider in a saddle-shaped universe that expands like a room where once I rode on my father's foot, learning the names of things. To continue, walk slowly through Grailsbeen. The first red house with the white corners and the green and white trim is Christina's. That's where I used to get milk. The light green house is grandfather's and his father before him. The blue house on the hill is the house my father built for my mother when they were engaged. Then Clara's, a red house. Clara Crista dressed up as a ghost one night to scare us. White shirt over her head and candle in her mouth. Then Clara Fina's house. She had many children. <laughs> the youngest, a pair of identical twins. Her husband had been in an asylum as far back as I remember. The reason he was put away, the only reason I ever knew was that he used to play the violin. All the time, the violin. <laughs> then, the Inneberries in the mountain, where the girl died of tuberculosis. In the patch of woods between Inneberry and the next house, there is a large birch tree I once claimed as my own. I would climb it, sit on a branch, make poems, tell secrets to the one friend who was allowed to enter that privacy. I thought that tree was my discovery. But then I found out that my father had had it as his when he was small, and so did my grandfather. <laughs> you can climb it. Then Smes, which must have housed a blacksmith long ago, according to its name. That's about it. Grailsbeen, six homesteads. Continue, cross a small wooden bridge, follow the lowland to the town. Uvrekolix, you will know it by the church. Sometime in the 19th century, there was a war with Russia, and the Russians came to northern Sweden. Some soldiers asked one of the local farmers to tell them how to get to the church. They wanted the church treasure. The farmer told them to get in his boat. He would take them there. He started rowing them downriver, ignoring the waterfall. <laughs> When the Russians realized what was up, it was too late. And just before the boat capsized, the farmer jumped off onto a rock that still stands in the middle of the falls. All of the Russians died. <laughs> I know the languages spoken in colics, in uvercolics. I know the currents. My sister almost drowned in that river. My brother almost drowned in that river. I learned to swim in that river. I would like to know how other people can divorce themselves from a landscape. I am inseparable from that river. The stones and my nipples are related. Seagrass and my hair. The logs that were cut in the forest and piled on the ice to float downstream after the thawing rolled and dunked me in the water when I tried to ride them and scratched my thighs for all time to come. The river fed me pike and perch and yards of silver-scaled salmon and sent the loon to call me down in spring. And when the images get too pretty, the mist rising over pink water. When my first love and I paddled Thor's canoe over the flooded island, paddled between the partly sunken pussy willows on waterways that the midnight sun covered in gold, the river breaks 
It sucks my cousin down into the wild current of Starholm and carrying him downstream forever. And it calls me upstream, like the salmon, to startle the moose and the bear, to come to the place above the tree line where the first drops of melted snow seep into the black rock of Kebnekaisa. <sighs> Kebnekaisa. The name. It sounds like the name of a half-crazed woman who lifts her skirt to scare off the wild. Tony Trucks and Sharon Lawrence. <laughs> the writings you just heard were written by Pushcart Prize-winning poet and author Steve Cedaring, my mother, who was born 30 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle in Ovakalix, Norrbotten County, Sweden, in a land where the summer sun never sleeps. <laughs> I used to think then that when I got older, being that preacher and what have you, I was going to have a little farm, not a plantation, a little farm. I could picture myself. Uh, seeing myself plowing my mule or my tractor. Picture seeing a beautiful woman with my two or three kids coming out, bringing me some water to the farm where I'm working at. I don't want her to work. I want to work for her. I want her to come up and bring me and my little kids, bring me some water or a, a piece of pie or something. <laughs> Those were my dreams. Not this. Those were my dreams. But 
when this did start to happen and when I started to feel for real that I could do what I was doing, <laughs> the way people treated me, I was sort of like a guest at someone's home. I don't want to do anything to make them not be happy that they have me as a guest. Me. Brent Jennings. With the words by the one and only B.B. King. What I remember from age four, returning home from the tobacco beds and mama carrying the freshly picked mess of mustard greens in a bucket overflowing at the top, watching her clean the baby leaves, rinsing them, putting them in a, a big pot on the stove to cook. The day not too hot for late March, mild, alive with the atmosphere of newly growing things, azalea bushes and dogwoods making blooms. Watching mama, having started the greens, haul on the laundry and being warned over and over, don't touch that ringer, boy. <laughs> Feeling more and more by and by such dread, knowing it could crush my small fingers. Me, so very aware of it. Me, watching her with great effort, sliding the clothing into the greedy maw of the thing. Her spinning round the crank by hand, round and round and round again, pressing the water from the underwear and the shirts and pants and sundresses and socks, grunting some, sweating much. The clothes now clean to be hung in the breeze. Finally, all the clothes finished and swinging in the vernal air. Me and mama going into the kitchen, her ladling out a great mound of the stuff with a great big spoon. For us, a bowl full of mustard greens. Mama feeding me by her fingers, one dripping green leaf after another like strands of spaghetti. Me opening my mouth like a, like a bird to receive each bite. Gulp. <laughs> I gobbled them down, not with greed, but a certain delight, a, a wonder even. I, I don't remember being at all hungry, but I remember being satisfied. She grinned at me with approval, continuing to feed me the slender emerald strands, salty, bitter, alive. Her amusement at my eagerness to eat, and we both laughed and giggled, and I, I remember the taste of mustard, peppery, not um, unlike a savory candy. Uh, particular goodness, a satisfaction as rich as a cool drink of water, yet going the center of something more rare and more nourishing. Many decades later, I would ask Mama if she remembered that day, and she gave me this look as if to suggest that there was no way I could remember such a thing 
from four years of age. As if to say this was of such tiny, oblique, minor significance that such a memory could not be of much worth at all. As if to question my sanity. As if to wonder if I were joking. I was quite serious indeed. Boy, what you talking about? <laughs> I myself have often wondered why this green memory, out of such a cornucopia of powerful, indelible, life-altering, informative memories, sticks with me so powerfully. I suspect it was the very simplicity of the act and the fact that it had no true ulterior motive other than the sharing, the maternal gesture, and the witness of taste. This thing, this moment, was more, was more than about eating. It was about experience, about sharing in a free and simple way we rarely achieve as we grow older. I give and you receive. Ain't it good? Ain't it good? Ain't it good? <laughs> it is an initiation into the flavor of the world. Sterling Silliman, excerpted from Randall Keenan's posthumously published book of essays titled Black Folk Could Fly. Randall Keenan was an extraordinary writer, black, gay, and raised by his extended family in North Carolina. He is considered by many to be one of the great writers in the African-American tradition and the 21st century writers that I know have raved about him so much. I only got to meet him after he died when we did a show at the Brooklyn Center for Fiction. And I really hope that you guys will pick up some of his work. Randall Keenan. While rummaging through an attic in Northern Sweden a couple of decades ago, my mother found a bundle of letters. She didn't know where they were written or when. The house where they were found had been in her grandfather's family for as long as written history is recorded in Eivakalik, Sweden, over 350 years. They are written by a man, Helge, who leaves home on a religious pilgrimage. Tonight, I've included four of these letters from Helge. They'll be performed by Jason Butler Harner with Sharon Lawrence as Signe, his wife, to whom he is writing. wife's brother from the West Village is going home. I asked him to bring you this. Today I have thought about your name. Yours as part of the word blessing. Valsianilse, signature, God's own signature maybe. Mine simply Helge. <laughs> but part of the same word as Helgon, Elig. It is perhaps an accident of fate, but does God play games of chance? Are our names some holy gift we carry and uh, 
must live up to? These are strange questions, perhaps. Don't let them worry you. Maybe this questioning is the journey. Everything I see makes me ask, shows me my face in a new light, shows me God in a new face. In your face, Signe, my wife. So, I have written a song for you. <laughs> Sing this this evening. When I started to turn away from the life on the farm and spent more and more time praying or lying in the dark inside the cabinet bed, you brought me the lute sometimes and said that everyone missed my playing. It had become a habit, songs in the evening. And then one night, <clears throat> you didn't bring me the lute. And where I lay, I could hear a tentative strumming and then a soft humming and then your voice, first uncertain and then with an assurance that surprised me. I hadn't even known you could play. And when you left your mother's house, you started to braid your hair and wind the braids so tight around your head as Angmora, new mistress of the house, you slowly took over the responsibilities of the women's work on the farm. It seems your hair kept it all in its tight reins, carefully controlled on top of your head. Mm. Only in the evening, when you came to me in your white linen, was your hair long and flowing down your back and then over me. That song you sang that first evening when you told me that I could leave, told me you understood my need to go, told me that you would sing my songs in the evening. This song is for you. Signe's song. There are many pilgrims here, um, all travelers. At camp a fortnight ago, there was a girl without hands, a child 
really. I spoke to her. She looked at me with such large eyes, but did not answer. Her parents said she could speak, but did not want to speak. The whole family is traveling together. In the evening, she disappeared for a while. And when she came back, her arms were full of flowers. She gave them to me. And her mother said, but look, she does speak to you. Having watched you so lean over the riverbank to reach the first marsh marigolds in the spring, or seeing you stretch for the blossoming choke cherry, I know the need for hands, the speech of gesture, the speech of song, the speech of flowers. There must be some place, a country, where flowers are the language between men and gods. Wife, I think of you. I think of your body. I think of the many languages I will use when I return, God willing. If you think of me in the evening sometime, when the summer light lingers, go out into the meadow. Speak to me in flowers. Helge, your husband. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? Proving nature's law is wrong. It learned to walk without having feet. Funny, it seems. But by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else seemed to care. Dion Lee, The Rose That Grew From Concrete by Tupac Shakur. Widely considered one of the most influential and successful rappers of all time. Walked in the woods, strange, on those brown paths under the shading branches. How small the place is where I am, inside myself. Yet when I close my eyes, my being is filled with woods. A golden light slowly streaming down between trees. And in the evening, I lie in the dark. The woods emerge inside me. The same colors, the same light. Pictures come by themselves out of the dark. Impossible to summon. Oh, the way they glow. I am talking about the most sensitive that moves by itself out of us. After years of darkness, a face suddenly near and alive. Sometimes we speak to each other in these pictures with a strange glowing silence. We speak deep inside. Uh, trembling in the rock, water, you, far away, suddenly talking inside me, grass, rays of light in black earth reaching a little deeper 
until they start to glow upward, pale green. The flame of light goes out in a much higher flame of darkness. Got up in the morning, a bit surprised at my body that I had happened to come up in it. <laughs> Chris Gorham read Swedish writer, poet, and translator's piece, Gustav Friberg's Inside, which was translated by Steve Cedaring. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror. And each will smile at his other's welcome and say, Sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was your, yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back to your heart, to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you have ignored for another, who knows your heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. And just simply sit and feast on your life. Rain Morton, Love After Love by Derek Walcott, Trinidadian poem, poet and dramatist, awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1992. As for the words, find their tunes to prove their spirits. As for the dreams, Find their movements to prove their actions. Sing, my loves, and dance. I'll be watching until you cannot stop anymore. Just go on. Holly Palance. Anonymous by Marian Larson, Danish poet and novelist. Dear Signe, <laughs> it hurts to know how close I am, yet not quite at home. It seems I could reach my hands through the forest and touch you, but I can't. The air is a familiar cold. The blessed white on the ground. I cried when I first saw it. Like you, I ran out into it, laughing, playing like a child. The horse stood by me patiently, surprised. Who will be the wise one on the farm now, the one who says no? Or was that not wisdom? Signe, remember how Agnes's children made angels in the snow the first time we woke to snow together? I saw angels today. I think they are the only proof of heaven I will ever have. I accept this. Almost home. Helge. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed 
the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself an exile in his own land. And so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today, and this will be the day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride from every mountainside. Let freedom reign. And if America is to be a great nation, this must be true. Don Norwood with an excerpt from the iconic 1963 I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Lines in my face. 
on violin with an arrangement and piano star Parodi. Unbelievable arrangement.
Thank you to all the members who attend it. Your support makes the word theater world go round. A special thanks to all the wonderful writers and performers who bring us together and make us feel joyful, even when times are tough. Thank you to philanthropist and benefactor Ola Strom for believing in word theater. Thank you to Glass Animal for allowing us to use an instrumental version of youth as this week's theme. Thank you to my husband, Brian Laux, for always being supportive of everything Word Theater. Thank you to LA County Department of Arts and Culture for their ongoing support. Thank you to all our interns. Shout out to audio intern Vincent Paz, executive assistant Scout Riley, and our Saturday Stories editor, Jason Lee. And lastly, thank you to everyone for tuning in. Please spread the word that we are now Saturday Stories. Until next week, this is Cedaring Fox, signing off.